Welcome to Insights, practical startup advice from founders, leaders, and VCs in an easy-to-consume format. This podcast is created by Angular Ventures, a full-stack pre-A VC firm that backs early-stage enterprise and deep tech companies from Europe or Israel that are targeting global category leadership with an emphasis on the U.S. market from day one. These podcasts are taped virtually with a live audience. To join an upcoming session or learn more about the firm and how we operate, find us at angularventures.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Angular Insights. After a short hiatus, we are back and we are super lucky today to have Jeff Boring joining us. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks. Happy to be here. Awesome. So, Gil, would you like to introduce Jeff? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, the formal introduction is that Jeff has been uh, co founder and managing director at Insight Partners since 1995. Under his leadership, Insight has become one of the premier venture capital PE uh, shops in the world. Um, having raised over $30 billion. Um, Jeff's areas of focus include data analytics, uh, mobile infrastructure, uh, SaaS software in Europe, North America, and in Israel. Um, on a personal level, there's a lot of overlap between uh, my career and his, although I was a tiny little seed investor and Jeff came in much, much later. So first of all, thank you for the markups on JFrog, SciSense, Gemini, Quant, and a few others. More notably, Jeff has invested in, in over 150 companies. Um, those include uh, Encino, uh, JFrog, which we mentioned, Alteryx, Airwatch, SciSense, Shutterstock, TeamViewer, Wix, uh, Greenfield Online, and many, many others. Um, and a lot of those are in Israel, so there's a lot of overlap between what we're doing as a fund and what Insight is doing in much later stages or in, in somewhat later stages. Before that, uh, Jeff worked at Warburg Pincus at Goldman Sachs um, and, and holds degrees from MIT and University of Pennsylvania. So we've actually got more overlap, Jeff, at Goldman and, and UPenn. So, go Penn, go. Um, Quakers. Yeah. I'll never forget that when when uh, when I met you in New York, I told you about my my plan to raise a little fund. And, and, and you said to me, this, this, this plan makes sense, but but I think you'd make more money working for us in a year than you're ever going to make from Carrie from Spine. It's, it's probably true, but sadly, I'd already had some LP commitments, so I was already sort of uh, committed to this. But uh, it's not too, it's not too late. It's, it's not, not too late. late. Yeah. So, look, if this doesn't work out, I will be knocking at your door. Um, but I, I think at that point, you have a serious ad, adverse uh, selection problem. But I'd, I'd love to maybe just start on a personal level. Um, can you uh, just tell us a bit about yourself? How did you end up as a VC? And then maybe position Insight for us because Insight's a firm with a long history, and I think what how you've uh, invested has changed recently. Yeah, I had a strange path in some ways to this. First of all, when I started in the industry and got exposed to venture capital for the first time, it was still in the 1980s, uh, and most of the investing was some pr pretty brand name companies, some of which are still around today, like Apple Computer or Microsoft. But it was uh, you know really at the at the early is phases of the computer revolution. You know, my degree at Penn was in computer science. And on the one hand, and I had Penn is a sort of a unique institution because they have a, a pretty well-respected business school. So I combined those two degrees and it was pretty clear to me early on that I was a pretty good engineer, but I wasn't a great engineer. Uh, but I really loved the kind of intersection of technology and business. And then somewhere around my sophomore year, there was a Penn we used to read newspapers and magazines, um, but there was a magazine article about a famous venture capitalist who I'd never heard of before called Ben Rosen. And it was called The Day in the Life of Ben Rosen. And it described how he was going from Apple's board meeting to a company called Lotus, which this audience might not even know anymore existed, but it was the predecessor to Excel. Uh, and then to, I think it might've been like Computerland, which is another defunct now concept, but the first retail 
business out there, but it was sort of this, maybe it was compact that he was going to uh, also no longer uh, with us, but it was this sort of illustrious set of these amazing next generation tech companies. And I sort of looked at his life and I thought, wow, that's a life that I want. And that kind of started my journey. It took a year from that. Nobody was hiring, especially hiring an undergrad to, to the profession. So I ended up working two years at Goldman Sachs in a completely different unrelated field of, you know, fixed income trading, uh, realized that interest rates were not all that exciting to me. And then, uh, went back to business school, kind of re-engaged myself with technology, with a commitment to try and see if I can get a job. I think I sent a hundred resumes out and got one. Yes. Which was thankfully a great firm, Warburg Pincus and ended out having five years to really learn at the sort of early stages now in, in the nineties of, of the, what we today see is the software revolution. Um, but that was really kind of how I got started. So I, de- I definitely had an early desire for the job, not knowing exactly what it was, but it took a while to kind of find it. It certainly was not the industry it is today. So tell us a little bit more about how you set up Insight and potentially what were the most difficult parts of that process? So I guess to start, I didn't have a burning desire to start my own firm. Uh, that wasn't my, I don't know how other entrepreneurs that might be listening to this feel. It wasn't that I needed to do my own thing. It was that there was something that wasn't being done that was frustrating me. And in this case, there wasn't really a dedicated pool of capital targeting the industry that I thought was going to be maybe not as amazing as it's become, but I, th- I saw the potential of software back in the 90s as, as, as really revolutionary. And I didn't see anybody that was targeting, you know, the kind of emerging growth companies that really were just coming to bear. And, uh, you know, there was one particular opportunity that I looked at while at Warburg and Warburg back then had what was perceived to be a ton of money. And so we're always looking for, you know, fairly substantial checks to invest. This was a $5 million check for what would have amounted to 25% of a company that at the peak in 1999 turned out to be worth $20 billion. So that would have been a pretty nice return in the end. uh, We didn't write that check. They didn't raise money from anyone. But it was sort of that frustration that I said, well, maybe I'm not at the right place that wants to do some of these smaller investments in these higher velocity, higher growth companies. And that was, you know, I I actually looked for, there's two or three other firms in the world that existed back then that did what I did. I actually tried to get jobs at both of them. I don't think it worked. Um, And I said, well, if I can't, you know, if I can't join them, I'll beat them uh, to turn it around uh, a little bit and ended up starting Insight with a initially $16 million you know, pass the hat around individual investor fund. You you, you sort of hinted at this. You, you you hinted that the tech industry, the software industry, has surpassed even your own expectations. But what would you say would would you find surprising? Had you known how this would play out, or did you go back in time and meet yourself back then? What about how this whole thing has played out and how Insight has played out would most surprise the Jeff Waring who went to set it up? So. So we, first of all, we, I mean, if you read my original business plan, it didn't use the word software will eat the world, but it pretty much said the same thing. And we saw at the time then hardware commoditizing. Today, I'd say services and hardware commoditizing and software is capturing all of that value and then some. I mean, the magnitude, even to this day, surprises me. And I think we'll have part of this podcast talking about where we are today and the valuations today and how do we sort of support those valuations today. And I think I had a conversation with my partner after a company, uh, J.D. Edwards, was just acquired by Panasonic, I think, at 33 times cash flow. 
my partner wrote me this email and he was like, this is crazy. This is unbelievable. I'm like, well, in fairness, we've been telling our LPs for 15 years that we think software is a really special, undervalued, underappreciated industry. And now what we're saying is maybe the world has actually woken up to appreciate what it really is. But I think, I mean, looking even at a company like Salesforce, which is like a favorite of mine to look at, and just the level of pessimism around that stock price throughout the years by pretty smart analysts. And I can't tell you how many times people have said Salesforce was overvalued. And then just watching it, you know, maybe not in a linear straight line, but pretty much, you know, if you zoom out on that chart, it looks like a straight line up from, you know, I don't even know where it went public at what, you know, single digit billions to today's value in it, pushing whatever it is, 200 billion. It just sort of captures, I think, a lot of the inability of any human being to process compound growth over that length of time at that sort of uh, high level. And it's just really hard, whether it's Microsoft, Amazon, Salesforce, you know, all these companies have just far exceeded even the public market's imagination of what they could be, right? I mean, you didn't have to be a genius to buy Amazon stock 10 years ago. And you'd be sitting here today with probably a 500 to one return. Um, it's just sometimes hard to see those numbers compounding and people often get caught up. And I don't think we were any different. I, I, you know, we had the, the list of the top 100 software companies in 1995. I think the bottom of the list was a $20 million business. So you were in the top 100 with a $20 million revenue company. I mean, I think we could all acknowledge today that you know $20 million revenue software businesses don't even show up in a screen, much less the top 100. They wouldn't show up in the top 1,000. So the, you know, the market is just done. It's just hard for anybody, even at that time, to possibly imagine something this big. And I think we still are sort of surprised. Even having done it for 25 years, I still wake up you know, looking at a hundred billion dollar IPO of Snowflake and thinking, wow, like that's just pretty crazy. Um, that's just a, a really unimaginable number. I mean, I remember Google going public in, in 2004 at 25 billion. That was an unimaginable number uh, for most of us. And, you know, Microsoft went public at, you know, under a billion dollars. Like it's just the notional idea that there are trillion dollar companies out there today is, is a rather awesome shocking, I think, fact. So I, I want to come back to this topic, um, but I do want to ask you a little bit about insight just for founders who are listening to this, who are getting pinged by insight or looking to reach out to insight. Uh, let's let's just double click on insight for a second. I, I want to come back to this topic of where, where we are historically. Insight's a firm that in many ways is very private and also very visible. Um, what is, about the public perception of insight would you want to correct? What do you think the public perception is, and is that is that right? And or what's what are some misconceptions you well, want to change? Two things. Sometimes people look at our capital base and assume that we're just interested in the later rounds, and that's not the case at all. So I think at the moment we're we probably are one of the most active, you know, I'll call it AB round investors in the market. Um, certainly equal to anybody else, and leaning in pretty aggressively to do more. Um, and I think that. Our perception because of our size is that we're really the, the guys to call for that pre-IPO round or the, the D round or whatever letter you want to ascribe to it. And I think it also, I think with that perception is that the value that we can help companies grow is somehow better suited to that stage as opposed to a stage of, you know, one to five to $10 million 
revenue businesses were. In fact, I think we have an amazing set of resources for those companies as well. So I think that's certainly one perception. I think the other is, you know, we have certainly not intended to build a brand. I think we've done it just by investing and investing in a fair and broad set of markets. But, you know, there's certainly still some history in the West Coast in particular. And I think this filters to uh, less so Israel now, because I think people have seen how active we are there. But I think in Europe, some secret magic that a, a West Coast firm has that perhaps Insight and we are located in New York City might not have, despite the fact that we're far more uh, active investing in European companies than our West Coast competitors, even those that have set up shop today, years later than we've been there uh, in Europe. So I think, you know, that's certainly something that we're working on, but, you know, it, it, we're not out there promoting ourselves. We have a very different sort of, or non-existent PR strategy in that respect um, by intent. I think it's just, let's just make investments and let those speak for themselves. But, you know, every now and then it's it's a frustration to find entrepreneurs think that there might be some secret sauce to, to the West Coast magic and then affiliate with a West Coast brand when, you know, we've had a lot more experience in particular these geographies, but, you know, even within software, it's still, I think very few could look at our portfolio and, and have had more experience growing companies. I mean, definitely as, as a firm that is based outside the U.S. and invests outside the U.S., you know, we, we definitely fight against the West Coast magic thing. On the other hand, I, I, there is an old adage that, you know, venture doesn't scale. And it would seem like the way you're describing insight is you guys basically prove that it can scale. Is that, would you agree with that statement? A hundred percent. Yeah. So look, we made a decision because we get this, as you might imagine from our LPs, right? They get allergic to bigger funds. They think that there's the McKinsey just had a study today that said there's no correlation between fund size and returns, but you know, there's a natural vision that you're changing your strategy. If you go bigger, you're doing something different. You're, you know, defocusing from what made you successful. Um, and so we kind of did an internal look, this is now over 10 years ago and said, well, every other industry in the world scales a winner. Like, why is something different here? Why is it that venture is perceived to be this sort of, you know, handcrafted science that only the small could succeed? And when we really dissected it, we saw a lot of the myths that made no sense. And it really got down to this idea that, you know, our industry had never been sort of, I'll call it professionalized in the same way that uh, many other industries have. And the expectation was that every partner played nine positions if we were to use a baseball analogy or 11 positions if we're talking to Europe and Israel in a soccer analogy. And when we looked at it, we said, well, why is that? Like, we're not good at every position. Like, I'm, I've am i been doing this longer than anybody else in the world, probably in software. Like, I don't think there's anyone active or who's been as active as I have. And I still can't do things that some of my partners could do in certain areas. And I can't do things that even folks that are not, you know, that are just operationally, you know, more experienced than I am could do. And so when we started to dissect what do companies need to be successful and then what do investors need to be successful, we realized that a lot of those areas could be scaled very easily. And, you know, there are definitely some things that, you know, the database is in our heads and it's through experience and it's pattern recognition. That's a little bit harder to scale. Though even that by exposing folks to lots of opportunities is, is certainly more possible to scale, right? The more I see, the more I learn them. It's, it's just like the AI models that we're all building today. Um, you know, the human brain is a giant AI, obviously. 
So I think when we looked at it that way, it really gave us a whole new sort of approach to organizing ourselves in a way that was less constrained by linear sort of experience partner development and scaling, which I think is a challenging way to scale um, just because it's hard to get that kind of experience and trust. And ultimately you lose your ability to kind of self correct each other. If you get too big, right? I can't have 20 partners in a room, each of whom is independently sourcing deals and expect that I'm going to have a real feedback on every one of those individuals deals. That's meaningful and helpful. Um, and so you sort of lose that whole kind of teamwork approach on decision making, especially selection, as you know, as the number of investors kind of grows. So you have to really think about that problem as an, an investor to say, well, how do I do that without losing the magic? And obviously, what the companies want is they want some of that individual personality, but they really want the help. And that's what we kind of have lasered in on is. You know, it, it's one thing to get Jeff's time at a board meeting for a few hours on some strategic issues, but it's quite another to get real operational support in finding new customers, scaling your sales organization, scaling up your marketing organization, coming up with the best ways to hire uh, and best practices across that. And then looking at what we have that, you know, all the advantages of the scale are, are quite obvious, right? We have 400 companies, 300 companies. I, I have metrics coming out of the out of the woodworks on how to kind of look at best practices, who's doing what well, who could be doing what better. Um, so we have far more data pattern recognition across our portfolio than any other firm could possibly imagine. You know, we know sectors better because we're seeing so much in those sectors. We hear so much from our existing entrepreneurs. You know, there's so many things that scale obviously lends itself to. And then obviously it does help, I think, in terms of investing. Like I, I just have a bigger budget than a lot of my competitors to spend on how to help the portfolio. So today I'm thinking about our strategies five years out. I'm working with my, 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 in this case, my legal counsel, just to make sure that our documents can reflect it. But, you know, one of the most demanding things our companies have, especially our small companies is I need customers. Like this is kind of obvious. And one of the reasons you'd get bought by Microsoft or Oracle back in the day was, well, you, saw the event. I mean, obviously there's the economic trade, but you know, the idea was that they could bring you into their customer base and all of a sudden your sales could get turbocharged. Well, you know, how do we as a firm insight think, can we use our scale to create all the advantages of that M&A transaction without the disadvantage of losing your independence? And that's kind of what we've been working on uh, over the last decade. Wow. That's awesome. Um, so you touched on this a little bit, but I'd like to dive a bit deeper. Could you talk about what does an insight deal look like? Um, like what is your ideal company to invest in, um, both for the firm and also for the deals that you lead? So look, this has shifted a little bit as we've learned, you know, first of all, subscription model software has got some really nice advantages to it, which is if the customer is not happy, they leave. So you you sort of get a very quick read back, you know, read and feedback on on, on the product market fit. You know, we're, we're not the best at helping companies build products. Like that's not necessarily our core competency. Our core competency is scaling up companies once they've got some demonstrable product market fit. And we can go pretty early in that. And we'll bet on some teams that know exactly what they're doing on building that next generation product. But obviously the earlier we get to that question mark of product market fit, the bigger we'll debate that kind of a deal. But as soon as we see product market fit, 
And, and that could be three companies, uh, three customers. It could be 300 customers. We're going to get interested and we're going to get excited. And if we see a big market and a highly differentiated product market fit, you know, that's really the only ingredients that we really care about. Um, and, you know, look, the eye is in the beholder of what that means. And we, we've, you know, as I said to my investors, the biggest mistake I've made in the last seven years is saying no. So, uh, you know, we haven't made that many mistakes on things that we invested in. We've made a lot of mistakes on the things we didn't invest in. And, you know, we try to get better and smarter about that. But at the end of the day, you know, no one's perfect about that. And I, I have to imagine my no list and, and my competitor no list are equally you know, frustrating to look at, right? We've all got those stories. So it's, you know, I, I think we do our best to try and assess, you know, where we think there's great, strong product market fit with good founders and uh, and we're going to lean in and, and, and bet. And that could be a, an A round or an AB round, or it could be later. Mm-hmm. And so we have a lot of founders from Israel and Europe that listen to this. Um, I, I know in, Insight has had a, a special relationship with Israel for a long time. Can you, can you describe a little bit about what, what that is and why and what's driving that? And then what, what, are, your, what are your plans well, for Europe? So first of all, know that we've had a special relationship with Europe longer than Israel. Oh, really? uh, my first investment in the history of the firm, which was 1995, was a French company. That first fund had three of 10 deals out of Europe. So you know we've been a big, and my investments in Warburg were heavily European centric. So, you know, we've always seen software as a, a universal sort of opportunity, right? There's, you don't need the infrastructure of the old days of a semiconductor company or a hardware company. So you can really, I think, uh, look around the world for the just folks that are close to customers that have the best ideas. Uh, in the last seven years, I think Israel's grabbed our attention for sure. Um, I think what we've seen there is just a, a bunch of things coalescing at the same time of just some great technology, some great entrepreneurs, and a really just vibrant community of support to help make these companies successful. And then obviously certain subsectors like security, just some unfair advantages, right? Where, you know, the country, this way it's designed is producing some very smart, knowledgeable folks about security that even the United States, I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday said, we have the NSA, you have 8,200. They're completely different. Like I've never seen anyone's resume from the NSA. I certainly maybe once seen one startup out of the NSA. Like, but the 8,200 is like, you know, you, know you, you walk around the corner and you'll find three folks who started companies whose, you know, founders came from that group. So it's, it's just the way the Israelis designed their program there. It just happens to lend itself much more to uh, commercializing a lot of that innovation that's happening uh, at the level. But I think outside of even security, there's, there's there's a ton of innovation going on. And I think it's, uh, you, know, you know, I've got a much longer, <laughs> that's a separate podcast. Right. Um, now we, sh- we should, if you're willing, we should do that podcast. I I want to just, be, before we talk about sort of tech markets and valuations and where all that's going, I, I, I want, and maybe it's the same, the different side of the same question, but you, you, you talked about venture scaling and insight sort of proving that case. I'm curious how you look at the venture market. In other words, the way you're describing insight, it sounds not that dissimilar to the way Andreessen Horowitz describes some of the things that they do or some of the things that make them unique. I'm sure there's a, there's a lot of differences, um, but there's the other firms like way on the other end of the spectrum that kind of say, well, we'll never scale, you know, we're, we're, you know, boutique or artisanal, you know, firms like USV, firms like Benchmark um, that kind of pride themselves on that. Do you see 
that venture as a craft kind of just dying out? Do you see them having a role to play in the ecosystem? How, how do you see that? Look, evolving? I think there's there's going to be it's like you know catalyst to Goldman Sachs, right? Like you could be amazing as an investment banker with a very high focus and super exceptional human beings on your payroll and win the best of the best business just by that sort of very reputable approach. Or you could be Goldman Sachs, which might not have the same sort of depth in that area. And you could also be highly successful, but you've got and built this spectacular brand that everyone recognizes as a global brand that could be, you know, super helpful. I think there's room for both. I don't, I, you know, I think it, it'll probably be harder for the investing, you know, USV or benchmark. These are two of the best investment teams in the planet. You know, as you go down to smaller brands that haven't had the long history, you know, it's going to come down to winning deals, right? So a lot of this is about why the entrepreneur picks you. And that could be, you know, something or somebody involved in the company. And that could be a small, you could be a small venture firm and have that relationship. You could have, you know, just massive amount of passion and energy, and that gets the entrepreneur really excited. You could be super small for that. Um, but you will be competing with the likes of Andreessen or us who are going to say, well, not only might we have that, we might or might not, but we also bring all these resources to help you grow. And that's going to get increasingly difficult to challenge, obviously, as you're smaller. But look, there's a big universe of entrepreneurs out there at different stages. They're going to look for different things. USB and Benchmark are going so early that maybe that handcrafted personal touch of a very experienced partner is what the entrepreneur really wants and needs at that point. Maybe that's a good fit. But I think what it, I, there was just an article that somebody wrote about Andreessen and, you know, I think he has like JP Morgan on his wall as his kind of one of his role models. You know, I think I see that a little bit the way he does. I think in 10 years, there will be some versions of what happened to banking in the 70s and 80s, what happened to investment banking in the 80s and the 90s. I think something similar is likely to happen. Just to give you an example, Blackstone announced yesterday, two days ago, that they were moving to Israel or opening up an office, one person. I think I got 17 emails from people on that. I mean, it's not like Blackstone is a known tech investor with a deep footprint in technology that all of a sudden should be some awesome force. But yet their brand obviously triggered to a lot of people's minds some signal that this was a momentous moment for Israel to see that this illustrious brand, Blackstone, which is, let's say, the most institutionalized private equity firm today in the world, has decided that Israel is worthy of their dollars. And I just thought that was kind of interesting that even without any direct sort of obvious competitive advantage on the ground other than their brand, they were perceived to have some momentous sort of statement. Right. Now that may be, maybe not be from the entrepreneurs, maybe it's from the investors who, who know the brand better than the entrepreneurs do, but you know, it was just sort of interesting. So I, I do think that we're going to wake up in 10 years and there will definitely be some of us who've kind of sort of chased a, a more institutionalized Still, we hope customized version of it with a lot of resources that we could offer our portfolio companies, and others might still take the more classic approach of of handcrafting each deal. And I think both could work. Um, you know, I think the risk on the on the handcrafting side, which we'll see what happens, is is there some amount of coverage you need to make sure you get into some of these really huge outcomes? 
right? Like that's a question mark. I don't know. Like, do you need to have a snowflake in your portfolio or a DoorDash in your portfolio to feel like you're participating in one of the big home runs so that your returns look and measure up to your peers? And I don't know what number of bets you need to make that let's assume you're better than 99% of everybody else. So maybe it's fewer bets than average to get to those portfolios, but it's still probably more than two a year, right? Like I doubt very much anybody who makes two to four bets a year has a, I mean, there's a very high probability they're going to miss one of those big wins in a fund or two fund cycle. They may get it over three funds, but it'll be a little bit more of a volatile, you know, structure. And maybe the LPs don't care. They just are committed to the, you know, the longer run for that. Right. Let's talk about sort of where, where I, where are we historically? And, and you, you set this up nicely earlier when you were talking about even you couldn't imagine how big some of these markets were going to get. And and I guess the question I'd, I'd love to ask you to start is, what do you think is the analytical error that causes people to not understand how big these could be? You mentioned compounding growth, but you know people understand compounding growth. I think they 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 expect that it stops at some point. It's not that they don't understand compounding growth; it's that they expect it. it's an S. They think it's an but S. Why, growth, but, right? But, well, but why do they expect it to stop? Because, because I think they, they can't. Have, I think they assume I, I think, that TAM is some level. It's that they're. And then they're always surprised, and we're always surprised that it's not right. So I think right. the, the assumption always is every model everybody does on paper shows the growth curve slowing down, and what we've seen is just dozens of companies transcend those curves and just blow through them, and then even reinvigorate, like Microsoft reinvigorate the curve, right? Mm-hmm. So they were already in that curve that we all thought, okay, they're back to single digit, low double digit growth, and then boom, cloud comes along, new CEO comes along. Next thing you know, they're back to, you know, mid double digit growths again. And, you know, ultimately it's just hard to see the magnitude of that as a human being. I just think we always underestimate that. It's just, it's just our human nature is to just see law of large numbers weighing against us. And you just assume things can't go on like this forever. And where does it come from? And then you do the bottom up analysis and you say, well, here's my bottom. And then all of a sudden someone changes the bottom up analysis by, you know, adding more value to the equation and you just doubled your, you know, your, your tab. So I, I just think it gets tricky generally for investors in particular, but for that matter, entrepreneurs, I very much doubt very few entrepreneurs set out to think that this was, you know, Jeff Bezos is a genius, but there's zero chance in 1995, he was going to look, tell you he was going to be worth a trillion dollars. Like as, as confident as he might've been, right. that seems highly unlikely to me um, from where he stood. So I don't think any of us just, it's not, it's just a human constraint. Every now and then somebody could zoom out and do these um, unbelievable macro kind of images of the world and look at these flows of the world and say, and I've done this for my LPs. I said, look, you, four years ago, I said 40% of the stock market was likely to be tech or more and your allocations to private equity don't match that at all. I thought that would be a 10 year journey, which turned out to be two year journey. Um, so even I got the time frame wrong. I got the number right. It's just hard. It's hard for people to get their arms around it. People are all rooted. I mean, I have LPs still thinking about 1999, 2000, literally until last year. It took that many years of since 2010, let's say that we'll call it the second real wave of, of tech growth. It took a decade almost for LPs to finally wipe all those mistakes they made in 98, 99. Right. And the, that's and how long those memories are. And the, the 
the the fact that we've been in a 12 year bull run or whatever it is it, that doesn't the argument that hey this has to end at some point is that does that carry weight or is that just a misunderstanding of of the secular growth in tech i would say more the latter i think valuations are always a trickier thing to kind of parse out and understand and yeah i can't tell you how many times we're wrong on valuation right that's our number one mistake is thinking something was too pricey and finding out you know two years later it's worth 20 times that right like we you know we had a famous conversation about zoom in our office where we talked about the billion dollar sequoia round and said yeah we kind of looked at it we thought it was kind of a full price deal like well we could say one thing for so this was after it's gone public before it kind of ran up to where it is today but it was already worth 25 billion i said well we could just assert for sure one thing which is they didn't overpay for the deal like that that's a fact they made 20 times right. their money on that first ipo piece so now let's understand why we didn't think that that was possible like what was it in our thinking that was wrong that made us not understand the potential of that particular company now look maybe it was just it was super competitive space you know it was a it was a, a random outcome and somebody got lucky or no maybe actually there was something in the product market fit that we didn't understand that was more subtle and the convergence of bandwidth plus product made it the perfect market at the perfect time for their business and just hard i mean this is this is all hard stuff but i think the macro right now feels to me like we're still in early innings yeah like, I mean, the, the implications of that are quite staggering right the implications of that as an investor even at the early stages or at your stages to say hey well look if all markets are enormous if all markets are at least as big as i think they are and probably bigger right and there's almost certainly going to be funding available for these companies and their sales efficiencies are, are probably higher than they think they are right then everything sort of gets marked up which is kind of what we're seeing it's everything right so if everything gets yeah. marked up then where's the risk and so what are we doing right like shouldn't shouldn't Tiger Global just come in and double every term sheet you ever give at Insight, and then you go double all their term sheets, right? Isn't it? Which seems to be what we're actually seeing in reality. Like that's literally what I feel like I'm experiencing on a daily basis. Yeah. So I think what people are seeing now is the endpoint. I'll be, first of all, there's two interesting math here. One, we we also do some buyouts, and we definitely see at some point those companies don't have unlimited TAMs, right? Like you can model those out pretty damn accurately. And so we've seen the cash flow is getting valued more increasingly because the predictability of those businesses is perceived now to be higher and higher relative to other industries. So I could pay more for those cash flows than a more cyclical business. But that does get grounded in ultimately interest rate math and cost of capital math, right? Like there's just no tells that you can create there, right? It just is what it is. It's kind of a, a modern version of a growth bond. On the other side, you look at the hypergrowth companies, which is where you and I are spending more time. And if the TAMs are getting bigger and Tiger has basically said, and I've not talked to them, but this is kind of how I read it, is we think private markets are undervalued relative to public markets. We're just going to make the best bets we could possibly make in the fastest time frame we could possibly make it. And be as valuation sensitive as we can, but know that we want to win these deals and we're not going to worry about the last 10%. And I think what they're sort of observing, and I've observed this too, is if the endpoint is now 10 billion and it used to be 1 billion, and the curve for the last five years looked like this hockey stick at the last two years, where the insights of the world or the growth funds were making a lot of money 
on those last two rounds. Well, that doesn't make sense. Okay, so I've got to smooth that round out. Okay, so now the growth rounds are super expensive, right? So I could do uh, Databricks at 30 billion. Well, if that's 30 billion, well, then the next round can't make all the money. Okay, and all of a sudden you see that kinky line trying to straighten out, which is what it wants to do, right? So somebody is sort of extrapolating maybe with a lower discount rate in terms of risk of success than you think is warranted. And that's obviously the debate, but you could sort of say, we just looked at our portfolio and just the rate of time of growing to 20 million in revenue. And it's basically doubled in the last decade. So the, the pace of average company growth to hit 20 million is doubled, which is sort of indicative of something, at least that your time to- Meaning it's, it's taking half the time to get the 20 million. Half the time to get the 20 million. Which is speaking to the market side. It's all so and I and I pose the question to one of my partners, I'm like, well, what do we pay then? Like, how do we process that? We know the companies are worth more, right? It, clearly, if it's growing twice as fast as they used to grow, it's worth how much more is it worth? And if we think the market's much deeper, how much is that worth? How do you put a number on that? It's not easy, but you know, you're maybe we're all so grounded in our historic multiples that we're just it's like I think this happened in the macros. We we saw interest rates drop to call it one percent over the last 30 years, 40 years. And I don't think our brains were processed. Like every time we're all, we're always so surprised that like something gets pricier. We're like, well, but interest rates keep dropping. Like, shouldn't that be the natural consequence of, you know, a dividend stock that pays dividends? Shouldn't it ultimately trade to the underlying interest rate that you could substitute it for? And, you know, yet we're always shocked and shocked and shocked at how pricey the stock market was getting. And it was just sort of like this little frog boiling in water. Like we all saw the interest rates were there and they were going down. And yet everybody was like so hung on their historic multiples. And you'd see, you know, all these sort of articles written about, well, this is the highest PE ratio of the history of the world. I'm like, well, it's also the lowest interest rate in the history of the world. Like those things are not unrelated. And yet, you know, I think we we, we are more likely to fall back on this idea that of mean reversion. Uh, on valuations without the context in this case of interest rates, which were probably driving a lot of those mean reversions. Now people would say, well, interest rates are going to go back to historic 5%. And then no one's questioning, well, maybe not. Like Japan's been at this for 40 years too at 0%. Like they've been there. Mm -hmm. So who knows? Like maybe this doesn't happen overnight. Maybe something else is happening. So there is a little bit of just people, which is probably why a lot of young VCs are doing better than some older VCs, right? Like they're just not weighed, weighed down by all this historic comps and historic trading ranges. And they can walk into something with a fresh set of eyes and say, I'm going to jump in. I see the potential. I love the market. I'm super enthusiastic. So I, I don't know is the answer. I don't know where it, it ends. I know that historically we've made money when our companies grow, independent evaluation. Right. That's just never been the criteria that's determined our our success. It's just been how successful are the companies underneath us? And if they keep growing, we'll make money. Right. That makes sense. And I, I, I think one one way of sort of, you know, I find myself, I don't know if I'm a young VC or an old VC. I'm probably right in the middle, which is probably why I'm so confused. Because I hang out with people on both sides of the debate. And there's the people that are like, there's the whole this has to stop camp. You know, uh, one of our LPs sent us a very as soon as COVID hits and is a very angst-ridden email explaining how there was going to be mean reversion, this has to stop and exits are going to be much smaller and everyone should basically, you know, circle the wagons. 
nailed it. <laughs> no, apparently not. Exactly. Apparently not. <laughs> apparently not. And yeah, you know, but when not. I when I got the email, you know, the guy is you know, one of the smartest people I know, and he's speaking with you know decades of experience, and you know, and they've been through cycles before, and then the you know this time is different, but it's never different, right? So there is this kind of. It, it, it sounds like you're basically saying you'd be extremely surprised. You'd, you'd be very, very surprised if 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 this market for any reason in the next five to 10 years ground to anything looking like a halt. It just doesn't, it's just not a scenario. Look, I mean, it, look, the financial markets are distant. I mean, look, if COVID played out slightly differently, it could have easily ground to a halt, right? Who could have predicted all that? And the idea that tech recovered, I was shocked. By May and June, I was selling my stocks. I was like, this is crazy. Like, I don't have any company that's doing better than they were pre-COVID. And I think the market probably was signaling smarter than me that we think this is going to be a, an accelerator to long-term growth. So interestingly, we all criticize the public markets as quote these short-term, you know, voting machines or, or the popularity machines. But in reality, maybe the stock market saw the accelerated growth coming, which we did see, by the way, in Q1. Like a lot of our most of our companies did really well, um, and many actually exceeded what they had hoped to do. So is it possible that the public markets actually saw through the COVID recession to the acceleration of adoption of technology and maybe putting us on a faster curve than we were on pre-COVID? But you could have an event, whether it's that, whether it's some other geopolitical event that just freezes the financing market. And there's no question there's some vulnerabilities right now. A lot of our companies are selling to other companies that are funding, getting fundraising, right? Like there's a lot of... What killed the 99 bubble, in my view, was once the financing for telcos dried up, we realized none of us were wearing bathing suits because we were all more or less dependent upon, you know, so that dried up the equipment companies like Juniper. And then that dried up all the software companies that were trying to sell to Juniper. And like, we just realized that it was an ecosystem built off of a funding market, in this case of, of the telcos. You know, at the moment, there's no doubt that a lot of the customers that we probably see within our portfolios are, in fact, tech companies as well. So there's a yep. fair amount of that. I'm not saying that's all the portfolio, but it could be half the portfolio is selling to itself. Mm -hmm. So that could you could easily see how if a financing market froze up for some reason, and like it did in I mean, early I've, I've COVID heard that days. Said. I've, I've heard that said. Now, I've had one founder say to me of a, of a later stage company, say, hey, look, we're paying startups three to five times what we should be paying them for their products because we don't care because we are drowning in VC money and it doesn't, we don't have to do with it. And so there are friends, they ask us for 300. And I think, I think you saw in April, in, in April and May, you saw, I mean, my portfolio was really aggressively trimming costs, right? They didn't, no one knew that this was going to be a, a sort of a, a two quarter challenge for companies. And then it was going to kind of come back. And a lot of our, we saw a lot of churn, right? So I'm on the receiving end of that. And I'm on the, I'm on the cutting end of that. And we saw a churn in the portfolio, churn spiked up, but the financing market, and this is kind of the, the difference here, did, saw through that, right? Did not get worked up over that. It could have, it didn't. And it looked like it in March for, you know, a two week moment in time, it, it was going to get worked up over that. Um, so I, what all I'm saying is like, I, I don't want to be able to prognosticate. Yeah the stock market, but I, I think the fundamental demand for technology is unstoppable, unstoppable. And I think it's, it's now a do or die for, I'll call it traditional corporate America or corporate, whatever world. Like I was under one company and I won't even go into what they do, but you know, they're focusing on, you know, customer service. And they're like, well, if a company gets my 
software, their customer service improves dramatically, like so that the customers would experience a better version. And he's like, well, if, so if one gets it, they're all going to have to get it. Like, what's going to happen? Like, the competitors are going to be like, all right, I'm just going to lose my business. To it'd be like Uber versus, right. you know, something else. Like, you, once you raise that game, and that's exactly kind of what's like the taxi industry is. They're going to respond, or they're going to go, or, or the, the limo industry will go by way of the, right. the dinosaur, right? Like, you have to, right. you have to invest in tech to keep up, or else you're gone. And I think banking, all this is is is, is underway right now, where the the pressure to to spend money is is intense. So how are you seeing this climate translate into the decisions that early stage founders have to make when, you know, someone like you is offering them, you know, $20 million worth five years ago, they might've been offered four, or in some cases, someone else is offering them a hundred million dollars when another, where they only need 20. Um, and we have companies in our portfolio that are being offered, you know, more money than they could possibly need faster than they could possibly need it. Are, are costs actually rising? Is it rational for founders to take this money? Should they say, hey, you know what? I'll just take half the money for half the dilution. Thanks very much. Like, what's, what do you see in founders I mean, I, I in response to this? When the founders are taking the money, I, it is not necessarily what we advocate unless we're on the other side of that. But when it's our companies, like your companies, I, I think we're overcapitalizing a lot of these businesses. And so what looks like cheap money becomes, in effect, this balance sheet cash number that does nothing for you because you're not spending it. You can't spend it, just too much money. Now, at some point, the percentages get so small, people are like, who knows what might happen, blah, blah, blah. Like you can fantasize for a 3% dilution or 5% dilution, a whole lot of sort of death spirals that say, glad I had the capital, much like the March COVID scenario. But I think for most companies, what I've looked at, I've, I've been surprised. I said, look, run out the scenarios when you need this money. You're either doing really well in which case you'll raise more money at this price or better, or you're not doing really well, in which case you better fix what you've got and not blow the money away. Just because like if you're not doing well, you've got to solve your problems, not just spend your way to that answer. But candidly, it's not a resounding reception at the other end of that. I think most entrepreneurs are just enamored. I think there's certainly a lot of excitement about getting evaluations as a, even if it's a, paper profit or paper wealth. I think there's a lot of, and there obviously is some secondary that comes along with it. So sometimes it's real wealth. So I think there's certainly a lot of interest in, in, in founders and in, in raising money. It's not the silliest decision. So it's not like I get crazy worked up over this because it's not, it, it's, it's not going to make or break an investment, but you know, it's not necessarily with a massive amount of sort of planning and thinking. And that's okay. Like I, I look, everyone's allowed to have their, passionate about something. If that's an issue that founders get excited about, I'm like, fine. Like that's, it's not bad for the investors either. And it's real money and it's coming in at a real price. Um, just more often than not, it's, it's probably not going to get productively deployed for a year or two, right. at which point likely more than not, the valuation has gone up, not down. I, I, I see insight as a firm that, you know, does a lot of research and I have, I have friends that are junior people at insight. And I know how much work you guys do. We also hear anecdotes about, you know, some of your competitors, who I won't name who are doing, you know, uh, nine figure term sheets with one phone call or no meetings or stuff like that. I've, I've heard about a wave of these things as a, as an early stage investor that kind of, you know, I pride myself on doing work and know people and thinking things through. Yeah. You know, I, I find that kind of shocking and disturbing. I guess I'm, I'm, I'm curious if, if you're, do you feel like 
there is a reduction in the amount of diligence that's getting done. And is that at all detrimental or is it actually that, no, they understand these markets well enough, the metrics are the metrics, and you actually can make these decisions in a much, much faster time cycle than than you might have been think for. I think the diligence is compressed. I think there's probably a little bit of a underestimate of what work is happening behind the scenes. So a lot of these firms are in fact spending real money on real analysis on at least the competitive stuff, the market sizing, things like that. So there, I mean, think about what you could at that, at that stage, if you're talking about nine digits, right? Like that's a real company at that point. So there's a lot of work you could do that happens before you write the term sheet. I mean, you could talk to customers, you could evaluate the product, you could evaluate it against the competitors. You probably have the financials, or maybe that's the only data point that's missing is granularity in the financials. You might have a, a really strong conviction around the long-term economics. Is this a sticky product? Is it a churny product? What's the upsell look like in this product? All that. And you can get that without a whole lot of effort. So, you know, I think they're using their confidence and that pre-diligence work that they do more selectively uh, to move aggressively on time. And, you know, look, it, obviously time is the judge of all this, but I think the near-term measures of this would be pretty positive on their behalf. Like, in other words, I think it's worked out. And it's not just worked out, meaning the follow-on rounds have been even better than the ones that were, quote, quick and fast. I think the underlying companies have performed pretty well by and large on those bets. So I, I don't think people are sitting there saying, wow, I, I'm making a lot of mistakes by being this quick. Yeah. Um, my companies are actually doing well. And so that would suggest getting right. Will there be a, another, you know, sort of fraudulent blow up or two out of this? Probably. Mm-hmm. One thing that, that, that I am struggling to, to understand or to think about how to how to respond to, and I think it's a particular challenge for early stage funds uh, or smaller funds like us, is that you know you take a space like you know whatever space. I'm looking at some companies in the authorization space now, and there's like four of them that I'm looking at, and another four of them I know about, and they're all getting funded. They're all I can't really tell them apart. They all seem very similar. They all talk about the same things. The ones that we have decks are quite similar. This is happening in every space. There's there's no space. I can think of. I don't very, think that's very totally cool. true, but that's, I, I agree with your bigger point that there's certainly a crowd mentality. I, I laugh about Israel because everything gets funded in Paris. Like I've never not seen an idea in Israel that doesn't come with a, a counterpart doing the same thing. And then you have to pick between two really good right. teams. At least, that, at least two. Right. And I guess my, my question is that, that your competitors are all being funded. If they're good, if they're bad, if they're just stealing your website and writing the copy again, like the, the, it used to be when I was, you know, when I was a young VC, right? If you passed on a deal, it probably died because there was no one who was going to do it, right? Now you pass on a deal, someone else does it, maybe with a much larger check than you would have been involved in. And so the the competitive set of of any investor's portfolio seems much more robust and richly funded than ever before. And yet everyone's still growing. And I was that the existence of these competitors doesn't seem to be. Yeah, I don't think I agree with that. I don't, I don't think I agree with that thesis. So, okay. As someone older than you, it was way worse in the 90s and early 2000s, meaning there was just not that many ideas. Okay. So everybody was doing an accounting system. Everybody was doing a, you know, a supply chain system. Everybody was doing a warehouse automation. Like there was very finite markets, not a massive number of software markets to address. And there was actually far more competitors with less differentiation than today. I actually have a, a slightly different take. I would say that the 
memos that we create internally, the competitive risk set as it relates to kind of similarly sized companies is not really a big part of the memo. Yeah, it's funny. When I hear you say that, it suddenly clicks into what I'm actually doing. In other words, what I'm actually doing is saying, well, actually what's going to determine your growth, at least for the foreseeable future, is your own execution because these markets are so big. Well, but I'm also not looking up. But no, I would, if there was three companies in, we did a sales loft, right? There was outreach. Like we knew that. We made a conscious bet that there could be two winners and that we thought our team might be the prevailing long-term. We just love the management team there. But there's no doubt they're like two similarly sized companies just fighting for the market. Uh, you know, on occasion, we've actually encouraged companies to kind of merge and combine to make the market, especially if it's a tough missionary sell and you're spending money, not just on, you're educating the market and competing with your competitor after the education. Like that's a, that's a tough market. Mm-hmm. Then there are some markets that are big enough and look, we're investors in Sentinel one. They're a different, different product than CrowdStrike, but obviously same target market and clearly a number one competitor doing great, right? So that market is so deep and so wide that it can clearly demonstrably support at scale two, maybe three or four very viable companies. And going back to the old days of antivirus software, you know, McAfee and Samantha, you had 10 guys. We were always amazed. Always amazed. Like, how could there be 10 guys all doing well, all making money in this category? So, you know, every now and then there's, there's a market that could support it. And then, you know, look, security is the most complicated one because there's so many ways to try and solve the basic problem of protecting your your company. But uh, I generally don't find that we were comparing company A, B, and C and trying to figure out who's the best and who's going to win. Whereas you go back to the 80s, you had the disk drive manufacturers, the computer manufacturers, and they literally had 80, 62 disk drive companies were funded in the 80s all with the exact same price performance product. So you had to literally pick who's going to be the best of that. Like that was way harder to me than yes, occasionally you'll see two or three startups pop up. Now it's harder for you at the seed round because you're just, you don't even know who your competitors are yet, right? Like no one's in the market yet. As we get to A, B and C by, by the, by the D round, you kind of know what the landscape looks like. Right. Right. Not to say that somebody couldn't be doing something magical in the garage, but you know you have a pretty good sense of the risk of that happening. So you know that was certainly one of the reasons we had historically been a later stage investor was lack of visibility on the winners. I actually felt one of the reasons we moved the firm to do more over the last five years to be a little bit earlier is I felt like it was getting a little bit easier to either pick a winner, if not the winner, or at least somebody who could be you know the winner. And that just yeah. because I felt like the tech was so unique in a lot of these companies. Right. Um, let me let me close with a with maybe a selfish question, which is as an early stage manager, you know, we spend a lot of time sort of down in the weeds, kind of looking up at what's happening at the later stages, trying to figure out what this means for us. And I guess my question is, what does it mean for us? In other words, what well, you, what would your you advice win. be for you, us? You win. The biggest winner are the entrepreneurs, because they're going to see basically less dilution over time. And the second biggest one are the, are the seed investors, right? Because you're the closest to that origination point with the entrepreneurs. Now, at this point, it's pretty hard to get too competitive in the seed round. But, and then every other one of us is going to end up paying a lot more. But the entrepreneur, if this plays out the way it should, should own a lot more of the company. And anybody who gets close to that entrepreneur in the earlier rounds likely ends up owning much more of the companies than they would have otherwise owned. 
takes less less dilution. Right. So you, it's just a win. And now you've got your issue of I think you're right. Your competitive challenge is harder. Than, it's getting harder than it was. And I don't know how to price that into your funding and 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 how do you pick the winners and stuff. That's that's a little trickier. I think you make a good point there that for you it probably is a little bit harder than it used to be. It used to be meaning like five years ago when there wasn't as much money flowing to all these new ideas. But I think broadly, it's a great opportunity for the entrepreneurs to down owning more of their successes. Now, again, they have the same problem as you. They may be fighting competitively more than they might otherwise have five to 10 years ago. So maybe it's going to be a, a bigger risk to win, but you know, maybe better ownership if you do. Right. And what do you see as as emerging manager responses or early stage manager responses to the environment? Like what 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 should we be focused on as a fund in terms of making sure that we've got the right offering, the right approach? Yeah, I mean, what I'm saying is clearly the environment can be very, very conducive to success for an early stage manager. What do you think are so the, it does seem how is the right. playbook shifting? Well, look, it does. So it does seem like a couple of things. One, people want help and they need help. They really need help at the early stages, right? They need customers in particular. So you know, anything that you could do to help accelerate your company's success and they need people and hiring. So those are your obvious lifelong needs just at a pace and speed that's faster than ever. And then I guess, look, how do winners get made? If, if you really are investing and you think there are three companies, four companies in the category, what's going to differentiate that? A, a lot of it is going to be execution combined with perhaps capital, right? So in some ways, that capital can be a competitive weapon. And look, SoftBank's attitude was they used to go around and do reverse auctions, basically, and say, I'm going to pick one dog company. I'm going to give them more money than they could possibly swallow and make it and really discourage anybody from competing with you. That was kind of an interesting approach. It somewhat works. I think it didn't totally discourage people. And if you don't pick the obvious winner, you might find that the winner doesn't need that much money and can still walk dogs. But you know, that was their kind of idea. And, and so I think there's something to be said for capital being a discouraging other investors, right? It's when I see something that's got $500 million of capital raised, you know, I certainly do a lot of thought as to why I'm going to back somebody that might be in that adjacent market. So I think for you guys helping your companies just win, right? That's it. Um, if you feel like you don't have the luxury of time, which is, unf- you know, obviously that's the best is if you feel like you're unique enough that you don't have to panic. Cool. Jeff, thank you so much. Uh, this was a fascinating conversation uh, for us and uh, I'm, I'm sure found going to find it really interesting. Thank you once again for taking the time and uh, hope to see you in, in, in more co-investments. <laughs>